Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Oh, get that car out of my way. I want to ride my bike today. It's Bike Talk. Bike Talk is a podcast that's been streaming since 2008 at KPFK, which is a progressive media outlet in Los Angeles. We're now transmitting here at Valley Free Radio in the greater Northampton area in Western Massachusetts. And my guest today is Eli Beaker from Common Wheels, which is a nonprofit volunteer-run collective based in Austin, Massachusetts, which is one of the Boston neighborhoods. Their mission is to empower people to use the bicycle to enhance their lives. Eli. Hi. Hi. How are you? Doing well. How are you? Good, good. We had you on, was it last week? Yeah, it was last week. We had a cool talk with you and some other co-op folks. Yep. Collectives, challenges, the joys, good times. And now you're going to talk to us about winter riding, right? You're going to tell us tips and stuff because that's what you do. You help people get ready to go out on their bikes, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, at that time of year, it's starting to get a little bit colder. So you and I were kicking back a couple ideas, and I think this is what we settled on. I think it's timely. It's always good for a reminder for new cyclists and old cyclists alike. Right on. Yeah, so people think that you have to be some kind of superhero to go biking when it's cold outside, but we know that's just not true. No, no, you just need your bike, your normal winter clothes, and nine times out of ten, you're good to go. So there are a couple of things that you can always do to make your riding more enjoyable and less of a slog. As far as the bike setup, fenders on your bike to keep all the slush and everything down off of you is great. One thing people don't really realize is that when you're riding through inclement weather, if it's snow or slush or even rain, most of the time when you're getting wet, it's stuff coming up off the road at you. Mm-hmm. So fenders are great. And you can even look up online DIY fenders that people make out of milk bottles and soda bottles. Whoa, whoa, really? Yeah, absolutely. How does that work? You get like a two liter soda bottle and you kind of cut it lengthwise from to bottom. And then you can zip tie that. There's usually a crossbar at the seat stays above your rear tire. And you can zip tie that and it sticks straight out. Yeah. And keeps on that spray down from getting what's called a rooster tail, which is like that streak of dirt up your back when you're riding. And that works? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I like the aesthetic of the milk crate. That would really go well with the two liter empty bottle. Yeah, absolutely. And you can do the same thing and zip tie it to your down tube behind your front wheel. And that'll keep stuff coming off your front wheel at you. And so you Um, would just Google DIY fender. Yeah, DIY bike fender. And you'll see tons of ideas and tons of ways that people have just done basic stuff, done like really intense improvements where, you know, people are like making them out of like thin metal and stuff. So it's basically a fender, but they've got the tools and capabilities. Well, I was just going to say one thing, biking as a hobby can get really pricey. So I'm always about trying to find cheap or free ways to keep going and be just as effective. Yeah, that's the whole, okay, wait, your collective co-op, is that what you call you guys? Yeah, we're collective. And and that's like the whole idea, right? Is you're doing things that don't cost a lot of money, so you sustain it, maintain it. Yeah, exactly. When we set up shop, we've got our little parts tray carrier with a bunch of different like nuts and bolts and screws and things in it. And so if someone has an issue, we try to bodge something together and keep them rolling. I had 
someone come visit us to get help. And there's supposed to be like a little cap where the brake housing comes into the brake caliper at the wheel. Uh-huh. And they didn't have that cap. So we used a piece of a old chain to like kind of be that cap. Hmm. Provided that kind of stopping power. So like doing something like that, I'm all about it. All right, so we're talking about fenders and whatever that is that you just described. And the thing to me that seems like it might be the most important thing is where the rubber meets the road. Is there a DIY winter bike tire? Uh, they make special winter tires that have like metal studs in the tread. But you can't I, even get those now probably because of the supply chains. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I saw a set that was worn down to nothing on Craigslist that was still being sold for like 110 Whoa. And yeah, because it's the seller's market, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so for tires, I would say just get the widest tires that your bike can fit, a little bit lower PSI air pressure, Mm -hmm. and that'll spread them out a little bit. And the more surface area you have in contact with the ground. I have disc brake. They're not as user-friendly, are they? I don't know. The way I learn about bikes is I get a bike, my personal bike, and it breaks, and then I have to fix it. And then I kind of learn and I feel more comfortable fixing my own bike first time, obviously. So like, I don't know a ton about hydraulic brakes, but a regular cable disc brake is the same as a rim brake okay. as far as adjustment. Because you're still going to adjust the caliper, which is the thing that grips the disc, mm-hmm. just like you adjust the caliper on a rim brake where it's got the pads. There's lots of points of adjustment there where you can actually move the caliper and then you can move the pads in and out. Mm-hmm. Once you kind of start fiddling with it a little bit, you realize that it's it's the same thing as moving from the rim just down to the disc. Okay. So I would not be daunted. And there's lots of great resources online. Sheldon Brown, RJ the Bike Guy. Mm-hmm. I think I've seen Sheldon Brown. So more about winter stuff. Do you need different lights for winter? You don't need different lights for winter necessarily, but you definitely do need lights. It gets dark real fast up here. Boston. And if you're riding... You want lights, not necessarily to see, especially if you're riding in a little bit more of a city area that's going to have like street lights and stuff, but definitely to be seen. Mm -hmm. So you want your white light on the front and your red light on the back, which is a state law. I think an hour before dusk, you're required to have that front and rear light. I've never seen anyone get in trouble for it, but it is a state law. All right, in Massachusetts, I got to say, because we're also yeah. streaming in yeah, it from in KPFK in Los Angeles. Yeah. Totally different scenario, but maybe they'll be interested just for novelty about winter riding. Yeah. What about clothes? Clothing, you want to do your layers. So you have your wicking layer closest to your skin. So that's a wool or synthetic. Then you have your mid layers that are your retaining heat layers. And so you can go cotton for there. You can go more wool. And then you want something that wind breaks on the outer layers. So something like a nylon that provides that wind break so it doesn't go in through your clothing. And you can always dress in one less layer than you think because once you start going, you're going to get real hot and sweaty. So that's why it's another really good reason to have that wicking layer closest to you to get your sweat off of you. Wool is great for that. Can't say enough good things about wool. Mm -hmm. So basic general principles of dressing for the cold if you're active. Yep, exactly. But a lot of people who might bike to commute might not be athlete types who are used to being out in the weather and exercising. So you might have to tell people stuff that every athlete might know. Right. That's what we're here for. So just elevate the general base of knowledge. 
So yeah, you can listen to me say like one less layer than normal and you're like, oh no, I'm going to get super cold. Get out there and ride. And then when you're done, if you're super sweaty at the end and you're like, yeah, I could go one less layer. So know your body, know your level of activity. Nothing that we're saying here is definitely the be all end all or one size fits all kind of thing. We're still in the before you ride stage of talking about this. So you got to do the ABC bike check. Yep. So the ABC bike check is a great check for any time you get on your bike. And ABC is air brake chain. So you check your air pressure in your wheels and your tires. Um, like I said, maybe a little bit lower in the winter. Brakes, disc or rim, you want to make sure that they're working. Because once you get going, it may get slipperier out there. You definitely want to be able to stop. Front and rear brakes, I always recommend two systems of braking. That way you've got a backup in case something goes wrong. C is chain. So you want to make sure that your chain, your drive train, so your front and rear gears is all working smoothly, all shifting well, all that good stuff. But that's not for winter in particular. That's a general thing that you should always be checking, yeah. Did we mention socks? So extremities, socks, fingers, nose, ears, you want to make sure that those are covered. Nice gloves, Layer your fiber gloves with latex gloves over those one size up, which will provide that windbreak and help insulate. And then nice thick socks for your feet and cover your ears and nose best you can so that those don't get chilly out there. Now with COVID, everybody's got a mask. Yeah, the mask has been really nice during the winter, actually. Yeah. A mask or a buff, really great. All right, so then during the ride, you might have snow on the road. Yeah, so during the ride, don't be afraid to take the lane because you want to get into something that's clear and easy riding. And unfortunately, your bike lane or the edge of the lane where you normally ride may not be cleared at that time. So get where it's safe and clear for you to ride. Watch out for ice and also the paint on the roads. The white and yellow lines can get slippery because they're like smooth. Definitely be aware of it. And the other tip I always like to give for the actual ride is if you can follow an alternate transit route. So like a bus or a train line, because if you need to take a break, you're not feeling it, something happened to your bike, whatever the reason, it's really great to be able to just like hop onto a bus or a train. Mm -hmm. Good point. Um, you don't deal with people in rural areas much being in Boston, but sometimes it might be hard to find a transit route. Yeah, I'm more urban based. Definitely. Which you should be. Yeah. If you're riding in a more rural area, I would definitely say maybe have some sort of a contact, a work colleague, someone that you can call in case of emergency. Can you call AAA? I think if you have a AAA membership, they may help you out. I think you can call them with bike issues, but I'm not 100% sure. All right. Those are good ideas. The transit route. If somebody's just starting out, I don't know if they're going to be doing a lot of winter riding, but it would behoove them to do some research because like the slippery paint is something that a person might not know until they got out mm -hmm. there. So you did it. You got where you're going. You you're did it. done with the ride. You got to like clean your bike off differently if you've uh, been out with snow and everything. Yeah, I wouldn't say necessarily differently, but definitely more often because you don't want to let that salt and icy grime build up. It definitely builds up on the bottom of the bike, on your drivetrain, your chain and everything. So if you're someone that like is kind of lax about cleaning your bike during the summer, spring, fall, I would try to clean it a little bit more often and knock that stuff off during the winter. That way it doesn't build up too bad. You want to keep the chain 
and your whole drivetrain as clean as possible, which is definitely a hard thing. And if you're riding every day, you go like a week or so without doing it, no big deal, but try and store your bike inside if possible. And if you do have to store it outside, which is definitely a thing in Boston because we have really small apartments, see if you can cover it to keep any snow that may fall off of it. Mm-hmm. And also just be aware that come springtime, if you've been riding all winter, you may need to replace things like your chain, your brake right. and shifter cables, because those may have gotten rusty and worn out. Okay. All right. Great tips, Eli. And anything else about riding you want to share with us? Never feel like you have to ride your bike. It should always be something that you enjoy. And set your own pace because you're out there for yourself. All right, cool. We're about to bring Galen Mook on. He's the executive director of Massachusetts Bike Coalition. He's going to talk about the hands-free law and legislation they're working on. He actually hooked me up with you, Eli. And you're at Common Wheels. Is it commonwheels.org? Yep, commonwheels.org. We've got really great info on the website, and it will also have our calendar and all sorts of ways to contact us on uh, social media. So you can stay on when we talk to Galen. I may stay on for a bit. Okay. And I see him on the Zoom. Are you there? I am here. Galen, Good to see Eli on here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know how well you guys know each other. Or we go way back, actually. Cool. Yeah. I mean, long story, I should probably do full disclosure. I helped found Common Wheels 10 years ago. Oh. Now Eli works with. So it's small circles. Yeah. Right on. Is that what you did before the Massachusetts Bike Coalition, Galen? Yes and no. I wouldn't call it like what I did. We found a nonprofit back in the heart of the recession. All of us had nothing really better to do. We were all kind of unemployed. And since then, over 10 years, I've been doing a lot of stuff in the bike world in and around Boston. I'm still on the board of Common Wheels. So I see Eli quite a bit. And because Common Wheels operates in my neighborhood, every so often I'll roll by and see the programs running. I don't know how much Eli talked to you about what Common Wheels does, but they do street side bike repair. Yeah. Basically teaching people how to do their own stuff. So, which is perfect because I'm riding home or I'm riding on a Saturday afternoon and there will be Eli setting up the stands, helping people fix their bikes. Very good. I guess you're lucky if you're there. We need that everywhere, right? And is recession good for this type of thing? When you have an economic recession, you have like DIY bike co-ops bringing up all over the place? Good question. Maybe I'll partner this one with Eli too, who can chime in, because Eli kind of joined during a second era of recession more recently. But, you know, when we started Common Wheels in 2010, 2011, 2012, we had a lot of bike interest and activism happening in Boston. And this is totally a tangent from what you want to talk about next. So I appreciate okay. you being able to, to go with it. But Boston got its first bike lane essentially in 2008. And then the bike boom started to roll really hard in 2008, 2009. So there was a lot of like cultural momentum when Common Wheels was getting founded. And a lot of the people who we were rolling with as advocates and community members all had a series of part-time jobs. Maybe they were mm-hmm. pedicabbers or maybe they worked for the bike tour company or whatever. But nobody was really full-time back then bike careers weren't really a viable option 12 years ago. So yeah, I think what happened was Common Wheels kind of came about because a bunch of us got together in an artist screen printing studio once a week with a bunch of wrenches that were random from like our basements. And we had not a lot of knowledge and not a lot of expertise, but a lot of passion. Mm -hmm. So I think the fact that we had to apply that passion and we wanted to apply it towards biking and the bike community really did help us out. And then secondly, you know, the recession was fine to get cheap rent. But then once the recession started to fade a bit, we got pushed out of our screen printing studio that we were sharing, which is now sadly a parking lot for high-end condos. 
Um, but it forced us to go out into the world. So Commonweal's kind of shifted its model was instead of being in an artist community, like kind of in the back of a parking lot where it wasn't necessarily the most welcoming for people who didn't know about it or didn't speak the language or was a different age group or something. We were forced to kind of say, oh, well, we can't pay rent. So let's just bring our pumps and our stands and our tools outside mm. and literally set up on traffic islands at stoplights. Which and, um, that, from there we got to meet the community and kind of spiral out. Almost better. Yeah, different, but it proved to be a more effective model for sure. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to be mobile as a bike co-op. Maybe I'll pass to Eli too to talk about how it's going these days, but I'm seeing prices skyrocket in the city of Boston. Cost of living is absurd. People can't afford cars and our public transit systems and all that sort of stuff. So maybe we're seeing a continuation of the resurgence of biking based off affordability mainly. What do you think, Eli? You seen that? Resurgence in biking? Yeah. Something that I think we talked about last week was just about how every time we think that there's a fad that's fading, like the fixed gears from a few years ago, like something new comes along. And I think also another generation is having kids and trying to figure out ways to move those kids around. So even if it's just like the Sunday ride or I see tons of cargo bikes and e-bikes around for people getting around the city and living in the city is awesome. I mean, I don't know if there's numbers, if there's data. You would know this, Galen, right? Yeah, the data's not very good. You have trail counters around the state, but they're like few and far between, and they count people who are generally biking downtown in the business districts, and we're totally not getting numbers of people who are just riding in the neighborhood or the sidewalk who aren't necessarily being counted by the people who are out there with clipboards. But actually, in your neck of the woods, or relatively in your neck of the woods, Nick, there's a trail counter, just for reference, on the uh, Westfield Greenway, which is a little bit west of Springfield, and it's a recreational pathway that's mostly doing the counting. The trail counts have gone up 300% in the past two years. Oh, wow. Basically due to COVID. But the flip side of that is there's a trail counter in Kendall Square here in Boston, or in Cambridge, really, which is like right at the heart of the biotech industry, which you would figure industry's booming, you know, people are still working, but they're not commuting in. Hmm. That trail counter has dropped 80% since pre-pandemic levels. Hmm. So... You know, we're seeing ridership go up in certain places and decrease in other places. But then again, those are only the places that the powers that be have decided to choose to count. So, yeah, you yeah. need way more counting. Yeah. yeah, I'd say so. And then, you know, there's the Strava users. Oh, Obviously, yeah. those are self-selecting right. people. But yeah, it's all like, who but, uses Strava? Like, athletes. Yeah, exactly. Weekend warriors. Which is no more power to them. One marker, I will say, Nick, is still nearly impossible to get a bike shop to have a lot of inventory for you to go buy a decently inexpensive toting around town bike. Mm -hmm. I think that's not necessarily just supply chain. I think it's a lot of demand that people are just scooping those up. Well, we do know that the demand for bikes has increased. That's well shown, right? Because you have all of the bike shop data. But it, it seemed that if all the bikes are being bought, that more people would be riding in general. I don't understand the biotech neighborhood ridership going down. I mean, I wouldn't even call it a neighborhood. It's just like a bunch of biotech labs that if you're a lab person, you still go into work. But all of the affiliated work that went into Microsoft's and the Google offices that are down there, they're all working from home for the most part, or at least regularly. So I think we're seeing a decrease of daily commuters by bike in the downtown cores. But I think that doesn't mean that people aren't riding otherwise. Well, should we talk about what you came to talk about, Galen? I'll talk about anything you want, man. I see that. That's awesome. Well, what do you want to talk about? While we have Eli, anything else? Ooh, good question. 
He allows a wealth of information, mechanic-wise. Maybe one thing I'll ask is one of the most common issues that people need to watch out for, besides the ABCs, which is basic, what's like a more nuanced, you would know it if you knew it, type of fixes that people need to watch out for? I think fit is generally something that a lot of people don't think about. Bike fit. Yeah. A lot of people ride with their saddles, their bike seats, lower than is optimal for power transfer, basically. Generally, you want your leg to just have a very slight bend in it at the knee when you're on the downstroke of the pedal. And a lot of people ride with their saddle lower because they want to be able to put their feet flat on the ground while they're sitting in the saddle. And that's not how bikes are designed. When you're sitting in the saddle, your feet flat should be on the pedals. Your Um, tiptoes should be where you touch the ground. Right. So tiptoes if you're still in the saddle, or I generally will get out of the saddle and stand across my bike at an intersection or a stop, which is then a thing that you have to get used to remounting relatively quick, which is a great skill to always have. The bike fit in terms of saddle height and then also handlebar distance from the saddle. So people may ride either very stretched out so that they feel like their arms are just really strung out trying to reach the handlebars or very cramped because a lot of people don't know that handlebar distance and angle is usually really adjustable. So just looking at those things and getting bikes more comfortable to ride because saddle too low or weird stretch from the saddle to the handlebars, you're going to get pain, like knee pain, arm pain, shoulder pain, back pain, and then you're not going to want to ride your bike. So how do you teach people to adjust their handlebars? And what do you adjust if they're cramped or if they're stretched too far to reach the handlebars? What do you adjust for that? Yeah, so for that, the stem, which is the piece of metal that attaches from the bike frame to the handlebars, there's usually a bolt that you can loosen to angle where the handlebars meet to angle the handlebars in towards you or out towards the front of the bike. And just doing that really small angling will help with that. So if you can get away with a small adjustment, absolutely. And then going from there, depending on what kind of stem setup you have, there's a lot more adjustments that you can make as far as like height and mm-hmm. distance to make it more comfortable to ride. Is there a rule so a person would know, other than just the way they feel, where you should be in relation to your handlebars? Really, comfort's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. When people come to Commonwealth and I say, hey, you look really cramped. You look really tight while you're riding. Is that comfortable? And they're like, oh, yeah, I do feel really cramped and my shoulders feel really tight. Oh, you can just do this little adjustment. It'll open it up a little bit and makes it more enjoyable to ride. Somebody said you should be leading with your heart when you're riding. Have you ever heard that? I haven't. I like it. Like you should have an open kind of a posture. Yeah, absolutely. Well, anything else between Galen and Eli that you can come up with? I'm ready for hear what Galen came to talk about. Yeah, happy to. Thanks, Eli. Good to see you. Well, Nick asked me to come on to talk a little bit about some of the legislative work that MassBike is doing. And MassBike, kind of on a polar opposite of Commonweal's, MassBike does statewide advocacy, whereas Commonweal's does like the hyper-local biker problems individually. MassBike tries to tackle the policies and the landscape with which we all operate that people don't even really realize needs to be advocated for sometimes. Hmm. Um And some of that stuff is coming to a head with the hands-free cell phone law, which we were able to get past what we as a coalition of advocates and legislators, um, which makes it illegal to basically have a cell phone or mobile device in your hand when you're driving. 
And it was a long time coming to get that bill through. The governor signed it into law in 2019. It was a big day, went into effect in 2020, about two weeks before the pandemic hit. So it's been a little bit of a hard rollout to get that message out. And that's why I think if you bike around the streets in Massachusetts, you still see people who are on their phones. They're Zooming. They're basically still distracted. So we need to rethink how that law is working so we can properly implement it. And there's a lot of nuances to that. So maybe I'll start there, Nick. Where do you want me to go from here? Well, I would have thought this would have already been a law. But one question I have is, what other states do you know is this a law in that you can't have your phone out? Oh, this isn't like most states. Yeah, we are well behind the curve here in Massachusetts. I don't know the exact number, but we're like the lower 20th percentile in getting this law out there. We had a law previously that said you couldn't text and drive. Right. But that was obviously before smartphones really became a thing. And there were clauses in that law that basically... You could still get out of it if you said something like, oh, I was using it for GPS or I was just hanging up a call or something like that. You could just tell the officer and they wouldn't necessarily be right to give you a charge. So we had to beef up that law. But that law, I think, was it 2010 or so? You couldn't text and drive, but obviously technology changes and the law is slow to keep up. So we talked about this in connection with what happened to Charlie Braun nearby here in Northampton when he was killed on his bike by somebody who's on FaceTime, right? Yeah. So the reason this is coming to a head now is we passed this law more than two years ago. It's a mixed effect, and we're trying to figure out ways to make it more in the cultural consciousness of drivers so that they just put their damn phones down and concentrate on driving. Because of the crash last month with Charlie Brown, two of the local reps in the Northampton area, he was killed in Northampton, a couple miles from where this is being broadcast out of, the local rep and the local senator basically say, oh, well, They talk to their constituents, they talk to the family members, people who are grieving. And from their perspective, from a legislative perspective, they're like, oh, well, we passed this law. Should this law have really helped prevent this? And they took a look at the law and they said, oh, well, the law doesn't actually quite make it explicit that if you are going to be broadcasting video of yourself on a mounted device, Mm -hmm. like you're FaceTiming while you're driving, that technically is not covered under the law as illegal because the law was made before FaceTiming and Zooming and stuff really took a hold. So the legislators locally said, okay, well, we need to add in an addendum to this law. And so that's what the pursuit is currently. I know some of the motorists associations have these positions that are mind boggling, but are people arguing, no, we should be able to FaceTime while driving? No, AAA Northeast is actually supporting this bill change. So, and AAA, I should say, is a big proponent of road safety, and they don't want crashes, of course. So this is in the interest of the motorist advocates as well. There's not an inherent split between being an advocate of people who are driving and an advocate for safety. They definitely go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. So AAA is supporting, as I understand it, we'll find out later this week when the bill moves forward. I think we'll see AAA come out in support of it. All right. Very good. You know, typically we think of this antagonistic relationship between road users, the bike advocates can't work with the car advocates, can't work with the pedestrian advocates and transit advocates, et cetera. But that's not the case, really. We have this coalition that we all lean in. Some of those advocates are members of what's called the Vision Zero Coalition, which incorporates a whole different bunch of modes. But the idea is that everybody benefits when the roads are safer. Mm-hmm. Now, the question is, safer for whom, generally? And then we can get into the nuances of what this bill does and that bill does or this policy or this funding or whatever, this infrastructure. But generally, I'd say that we have a strong coalition of multimodal support 
And part of that's called the Vision Zero Coalition. Vision Zero, meaning that our vision is that no people will be killed in traffic. Yep. Yeah, in all modes. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad you're working nicely with others. And it's encouraging. Are you still on hiatus from your bike talk? Oh, yeah. Good question. So for those of you who've been tuning in, you're seeing that there's bike talk intercontinental happening right now from Florence to L.A. <laughs> and I was part of a bike talk in Cambridge, Massachusetts, out of MIT's studios. We are not in studio yet, Nick. So we are holding off on our bike talk. I am fully respectful and God bless you for keeping it moving during the age of Zoom. I found that if we can't get there in person, it changes the dynamic of the show. So we're just putting the show in hiatus until we can actually get in the studios right. together. Right. Well, if you want to just replay this show, then we could call ourselves syndicated. We're already kind of syndicated. Like um, how long is the interview? I don't want to talk over what you want to play. Oh, well, the interview is like an hour, but I would just whet people's appetite and they can get the rest online if they're interested. It's up to you. We keep going. Well, let me make a plug if you don't mind. Yeah. So MassBike is rounding out our year as nonprofits do with an annual meeting on Monday. If anybody's interested in what's going on in Massachusetts, we are showcasing some awesome local efforts happening around the state. The city of Pittsfield, which you know well, Nick, I think yeah. they mm -hmm. put in their first protected bike lane this year. So cool. So we're going to have the planner of the city talk about that effort. And then the mayor of Holyoke, which is just next to you as well in Florence, Mayor Garcia, he's going to come on and talk about the Valley Bike System and how they have an equity pass and they're trying to get electric bike share out to the population. And then Alex Morse, who's the town manager in Provincetown, which is on the very tip of Cape Cod, on the far other side of the state, they got named the best biking small city in America this wow. year. So we're going to talk a little bit about what it took and what it means to be the best biking small city and talk a little bit about that. But that's Monday at 6 p.m. And you go to massbike.org and get the RSVP details. It's, it's another virtual meeting for people, but there's going to be some fun. We're going to show a movie about Major Taylor, mm -hmm. a little six-minute short film about Major Taylor. We're going to have a little networking breakouts and you're going to hear from inspirational speakers. If you are interested, radio audience, you can tune in this Monday, December 6th, 6 p.m. Go to massbike.org to learn more. And Major Taylor was the first black world bike champion, I should say. Yeah, so we should definitely do a whole show on Major Taylor at some point. I can get some folks from Worcester who run Major Taylor Association. Major Taylor was from Worcester, but also rode, you know, he's also from Illinois and such, but he was kind of Worcester-based. He was, in the 1890s, world champion, first black world champion of any sport. It just happened to be cycling. He was just the best rider in the freaking world in the 1890s when cycling was a real yeah. hot thing. Yeah. But he was black and he broke the color barrier. He faced a lot of racism. Like the League of American Wheelmen refused to recognize his races and his routes because he was black. And it was an interesting story that he was able to pursue. But keep in mind that this was America before a lot of sports were really nationwide sports, like before really baseball and basketball and oh. all the rest of the sports that we know modern-wise weren't really a thing. But cycling was a hot, hot thing. And um, this man, Marshall Major Taylor, he blew it out of the water. I've actually been in touch with your communications person, Jen Slavin, that we might oh, get some of your recording of this. I would so love to. Yeah, could... thanks again. It's all the syndicated rebroadcasts. So thank you. Yeah, and maybe our editor just get the choice parts. So do you want to hear this interview? I'm down. Yeah. Yeah? This is a way to get L.A. into it because we are bi-coastal. What are you calling it? Intercontinental. I don't know. Whichever. But here we have an interview with one of our co-hosts, Lindsay Sturman, who's in L.A. And this is with a bike train guru. His name is Roland Kager. He's from the Netherlands. So he's all about the bike 
public transportation connection and integration, and Brett Atencio Thomas, who's principal transportation planner at LA Metro. So he does bike share and open streets. So we thought it would be good to have these people together and just see what they talk about. And you'd probably be interested. I'd love to. This is like a full episode. So it's got the pre-show teaser clip and then the theme song. And All right, cool. Hey, we didn't do Bike Joy. Ooh, yeah, let's end with Bike Joy. All right, cool. And so this is going to be a teaser and you can hear the rest on SoundCloud slash Bike Talk. We see that 55% of all people sitting in each train every day of everywhere in the Netherlands arrive or depart by bike on their journey. And this is more than 10% of the total travel demand in the Netherlands. That's one thing we did in Los Angeles that I think we really got right was we allowed bicycles on our trains really from the beginning. And that's something that a lot of other metro areas are slowly catching on to in the United States that was previously prohibited. Then you got the old theme song. Welcome to Bike Talk. Today, we have two amazing people in the world of bikes. We have Roland Kaher, who is known as the bike train guru. And he was a researcher at the University of Amsterdam on the bike train connection. And now you're a cycling transit and urban planner at Studio Verag Bar in Rotterdam. And we also have Brett Atencio Thomas, who's a principal transportation planner at LA County Metro, but he's here in his personal capacity as a SoCal bike expert. Welcome, you guys, to Bike Talk. Thank you. Thanks so much, Lindsay. So I thought I would start with asking, Roland, you've done all this research into the bike transit connection, bike-oriented development, BOD. I love that. And almost going back to the 1930 era of bikes and streetcars. So tell us about the bike transit connection. Yeah, so it's a big pleasure to be asked to execute a national research program some seven, eight years ago at the University of Amsterdam. I have been a transport planner for some 10, 15 years before. And then I was asked, can you draft a research agenda? What cycling and transit have to do with each other? And then quite quickly, I arrived that often in transport, we look at trips in transport planning and transport consultancy. But if you look at the individual level, you see very different patterns. So on a trip level, you might think bike and transit that they compete with each other for short trips. But if you look on an individual level, you see people, who, at least in the Netherlands, but increasingly in many urban areas in the world, the people who cycle a lot also use transit a lot and mostly trains and long distance public transport, but also vice versa. People who use trains and express buses a lot. They also cycle at least more than average. And the third connection is actually the urban dimension, that people who live in urban centers or frequently travel towards urban center, they use public transport more often because that's gearing towards those destinations and or they use cycling more often. So on an individual level, these modes go very well together. And the final step then actually is researching, can you also use bikes if you use them more regularly or at least more than average in an area? And you also use cycling to reach public transport stops because that greatly increases the number of stops you have accessible. And there is a lot of interesting phenomena. And I hope to talk with you a bit more about that. Yeah. So what I'm understanding is that the bike transit connection is far more powerful than one or the other. And actually people, they like access to bikes in transit better than they like a car. Is that right? Well, of course, public transport is awesome. 
there's only one thing reaching a station, providing that there is a decent service. How do you get to the station? Or if you're at the station, how do you get to your true destination? And biking is a bit an opposite problem. It's awesome as long as your journey is not longer than, say, five kilometers, because then it gets very tedious to cycle, at least on a daily routine where you need to go somewhere else. But if you put them together, this works very well. Because then suddenly the catchment area of all your stations is much increased. This is excellent for a transit operator because then he can provide less stations. So he needs to have less stations with infrastructure, etc., etc. But mostly you get more efficient services because you can concentrate your services on a limited number of stations. So you have more express services and you have less routing problems. So this is an excellent combination if you can increase the catchment area of your stations. And especially in the Netherlands, where some 15% of all trips are made by trains and long-distance public transport, we see that 55% of all people sitting in each train every day of everywhere in the Netherlands arrive or depart by bike on their journey. And this is more than 10% of the total travel demand in the Netherlands. Wow. Cycling alone is 30% of all trips in the Netherlands. Wow. So, Brett, we're in L.A. How could this translate to L.A.? I think Roland brings up a lot of really good points. Some of the first things to consider really is that bicycling and transit are both a substitute for each other as well as a complement. So Roland brings up a lot of good points. So if you're like within a five kilometer or for us, maybe two, two and a half mile radius, that's a five, six minute bike ride. That's an easy way to substitute for transit. So instead of waiting maybe a five or six minute headway for a bus or a train, you might just take that trip on the bike. In that case, it's a substitute. Whereas it's a compliment when you have those longer distance trips. So you might say, hey, here I am 15 miles from my destination. And kind of a joke for Roland in Los Angeles, we often say minutes instead of miles because of our traffic here, our our (laughs) orange. If you're 15 miles from your destination, say if you're here in Los Angeles and you're in the valley, And you want to be able to take your bike on a train or have a bike available at the other end if you're coming to, say, downtown and want to go to the Arts District. So our train might not necessarily go all the way from the Valley into the Arts District. It might only go into the Financial District or the Historic Core parts of downtown. But when you get to downtown, you could easily get off and bike that last two or three miles to get to the Arts District. In that sense, it's a complement to transit. You know what? I'm going to have to cut it off because we're running out of time. But I'm sure that there are people who are like, no, don't stop. So if you want to hear the rest of that interview with Brett Atencio Thomas, who is the principal transportation planner at Los Angeles Metro, and Roland Kager, who's Netherlands bikes and trains and public transit expert, you can go to soundcloud.com slash bike talk. So can we get back to bike joy? (laughs) Yeah, most definitely. Well, first off, this is awesome. I'm actually going to follow up with these because we're fighting a battle here in Massachusetts about getting bikes on our commuter rail. And they're rolling back some of the regulations to prohibit bikes on the commuter rail during rush hour these days. So we need to show our Massachusetts transit system-based policymakers what's possible out there. And so I think I'm going to take some inspiration from this bike talk. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you got to talk to people from the Netherlands. Um, Bike joy. Yeah, what is my bike joy? Well, I mean, this is an easy one. I was just riding into work the other day in Boston and riding on the bike path right along the Charles River. And it was one of those gorgeous winter, bright blue sun is streaming through and it was like me it was peaceful and i was bundled i was warm even though it was chilly out and the water was this crisp Mm. blue and looked across and saw mit's campus i just got one of those like man i love this city Mm -hmm. you know yeah yeah those are great i mean those moments when you love your city you love your surroundings 
I'm so glad I'm here. I'm yeah. reaffirmed in the work that we're doing. So I'm in on it. Yeah. Eli, do you have a bike joy for us? Uh, I mean, honestly, I would say doing this show. The sweetheart. Yeah. You know, talk to Nick and talk to the guests last week. Talk to you this week, Galen. You know, always about getting out there and spreading the good word. Cool. Awesome. Thank you for that, Eli. Warms my heart. Right on. Well, I got an e-bike, and so that was yesterday. Ooh, uh, new bike day, huh? Yeah. So that's my bike. Should have led with that, man. <laughs> I want to hear all about that. Well, we're actually out of time for the Shucks. show. <laughs> but I'm sure I'll talk about it for the rest of my life. <laughs> You're going to be one of those riders. Oh, I always have been. For every minute of riding, I do like a minute and a half of talking about it. <laughs> well, I'm interested in learning about it. So maybe we can do a show in a couple months or a couple weeks of how is the e-bike in the Hilltowns, man? Okay, right on. That would be great. Um, Galen, any connections you want people to make, like places they should go to support or find out more? Well, you already did. You have this meeting. We have our annual meeting. But, you know, I also say this is the time of giving. So find your local bike co-op, like Common Wheels, or find whatever else is going on. Northampton's got a few. There's the Friends of Northampton Trail. In Pittsfield, there's a Berkshire Bike Path folk. Like, find your local effort and give it some love, either dollar-wise or some volunteer support or whatever you can do this time of year to know that there are good people doing the hard work out there. It means a lot to them to have a little bit of support. That's my pitch. Thanks, Galen. And in LLA, there's several organizations, so we'll get more into that also. Okay, we'll talk to you next time. Cool. Thanks, Nick. Ride low, ride low, ride low, ride low.